Well, at least you don't have the Rona. True. I did get tested. Yeah. So... <laughs> Good evening and welcome to Did You Do Your Homework, the pop culture podcast connecting academic ideas to popular media. I am your host, Martha Sullivan, uh, and the reason that this episode is so tragically delayed. I apologize, <laughs> I have been sick, but, however, not sick with COVID, so I call it a win. There's no need uh, to apologize for being <laughs> sick. That is a thing that happens and is a pretty dang good reason to be delaying a, a podcast drop. Uh, and butting in before his introduction, I am here as always with my co-host. I am Pete Romberg and I am uh, delightfully full with some leftover shepherd's pie that I made on Sunday, a vegetarian shepherd's pie, um, in honor of Burns Night, which was uh, Monday. Uh, and it's like a Scottish nationalist night celebration. Uh, I am not Scottish at all, but it's a good excuse to, you know, make shepherd's pie and drink whiskey. So it's a liar's shepherd's pie. Yes, sure. <laughs> well, shepherd's pie implies the existence of sheep. That's fair. I'm sure sheep were somehow... I was wearing wool while cooking it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but speaking of food, we are going to be spending today talking about some fictionalized food media. Uh, but before we get into that, we are going to tell you what's been stuck in our heads this week. Uh, this is the piece of pop culture or media that we uh, can't stop thinking about or that has particularly grabbed our attention since last we spoke. Uh, Pete, what's stuck in your head? Uh, so a uh, two weeks ago at this point, two weeks ago, I finally got around to watching Tenet, uh, Chris Nolan's latest movie. Uh, this came out in theatrical release over the summer, but... Uh, as everyone but Chris Nolan realized at the time there was a big pandemic going on. Still is. Um, so I did not go see it in theaters. Saw it when it was finally available for rent. Um, I would love to see this movie again, and I would certainly love to see it again in a movie theater. I really enjoyed it, but that's partly because it's a movie very dialed into things that I enjoy. Um... And at the same time, I think it is one of the weaker, uh, it, it's it's one of Nolan's weakest movies in like two decades. Um, it's got lots of problems, but if you turn your brain off and just sort of let it take you away, uh, and you're someone who's a sucker for like time traveling nonsense and uh, things where it's like, oh, you're the person you saw in the past, but now you're doing it yourself kind of stuff. Uh, it's fun. Yeah, it's really too bad that Nolan was such a snot about the release of it because I'm never going to watch it. Oh, come on. Just no, even... he was such... No, no. He was so disrespectful to movie-going audiences and so irresponsible about the whole release of his movie. I'm not going to do it. Right, fair enough. <laughs> this, this is not the Argue About Chris Nolan Movies podcast, so... I mean, I, it it could be great, and I still wouldn't see it, because mm -hmm. I think he behaved so abominably about just the whole release schedule of the film. Like, if, if getting it in theaters was that important to him, he should have benched it for a year. Yeah, uh, I think he thought that he was going to be saving movies or whatever, or saving movie theaters, but I also agree that he went about it the wrong way. 
So what he did was he forced them to be open to limited audiences. They were going to be open anyway because they couldn't close because, you know, our government hasn't figured out that you need to just pay people money to not be open. Anyway. (laughs) Yeah, like I said, this is not the Argue About Chris Nolan Movies podcast, so... Um, yeah, what is so what is stuck I, in your head? I'm looking at this word that you've written down in our notes and very intrigued by it. Okay, so I struggled with this because the real answer to this is that I have clocked in like 30 hours of Hades over the last two weeks. <laughs> yes, one of us. Um, but we've already talked about that one ad nauseum, so I could not continue to talk about it on the podcast. I saw on Twitter, though, that you just got the rod of fishing. Because... I love a fishing minigame. <laughs> have fun with that. Um, no, so I started listening to a podcast called Austerian, which is hosted by uh, Jordan Cruciola and Sam Weinman, uh, who are two movie critics, freelance journalists, people who like to talk about movies on Twitter. It is a podcast dedicated to exploring uh, the horror produced in the 2000s era. So they made a podcast specifically for you. See, this is what I'm talking about. (laughs) So the most recent episode was on a movie called Drag Me to Hell, starring Allison Lohman. Was that directed Um, by uh, Raimi? Yes. Okay, yeah. Um, Yeah, they've talked about uh, the 2008 Black Christmas. They talked about Repo the Genetic Opera. Um, They've talked about a holiday horror movie called Silent Night. It is it is really plumbing. It is really getting into horror that was produced in the mid aughts to like early 2000 teens. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of which has really critically been dismissed. Uh, cough, Jennifer's body. Cough, cough. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and talking about the the merit that a lot of these movies have as queer narratives, as cult films. Um, really plumbing the value that was kind of overlooked critically when they were initially released. Um, Part of why they're doing it is because, you know, we all agree that the Babadook is a great movie, but we don't really need to be told that anymore. Sure. So it's, it's talking about horror movies that people don't give a whole lot of airspace to um, that. They just want to like, discuss and analyze because they're worth our time well and i i feel like there was such a um narrative in the mid teens or early teens like when it follows and the babadook were coming out of like ah we're in a renaissance now of quote-unquote good horror movies um which naturally presupposes that things that came before it were bad horror movies yes Um, the the phrase that i came to dislike uh intensely was elevated horror, mm-hmm. which presupposed that horror that came out before Get Out or A Quiet Place, which John Krasinski, get over yourself. You made a really good monster movie, but it's still just a really good monster movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, so to, to dismiss some of these movies as being like, pop trash is not giving them enough credit and mm-hmm. that's what the uh the podcast is dedicated to hmm. very cool i i do feel like jennifer's body at least is ex- uh, in the past couple of years has experienced like a critical reassessment uh but i know that all the other ones have not 
Yes. Well, and part of that is because Karen Kasama, the director, is incredible. And when she put out the invitation, um, I think people were like, oh, what else has she done? Oh, right. This movie. And also, I think that um, people finding out how poorly Megan Fox has been treated by the Hollywood machine. Yeah. Um, brought a lot of conversation to Jennifer's body. Um, Plus, anyway, th there was the fact that it was marketed so poorly vis-a-vis -vis what the movie was. So at the time, it was, it, you know, had a bad cinema score and all the rest of it because uh, horny teen boys thought they'd be seeing a lot of, you know, lesbian makeouts or whatever with uh, um, Jennifer. Amanda Seyfried. Yeah, um, and yeah. Uh, Megan Fox, there we go. Uh, and that's not what the movie was. <laughs> so uh, now, now that it's sort of divorced from that marketing campaign, it can sort of be explored on its own merits. Yeah, I kept trying to put it on my list of 100 Scariest Movie Moments from 2010 to now, but it came out in 2009. Womp mm. womp. <laughs> mm. uh, we are going to take a quick recess, and when we come back, we are going to get into food stories. And we are back. So the origin of this episode really came from the fact that I love a food story. I love a movie about food bringing people together. I love a movie about a, a chef learning the ins and outs of their trade. Um, I also love reality shows about food, but we'll get into that later. Uh, and I really, I was just interested in spending some time exploring why culturally food provides such a strong emotional connection uh, so as to support basically an entire genre of storytelling. Um, a lot of this was inspired by the fact that I've been watching a uh, binge watching a very particular anime, which we will get into. Um, <laughs> But, and I suppose we should have talked about this first, um, why don't we start with you, Pete, because chronologically, uh, your homework comes first in our timeline. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're right. We did not talk about the order, but I had no strong opinions one way or the other, so this sounds great. I assigned the 2007 Pixar movie Ratatouille, directed by Brad Bird and starring the voices of Patton Oswalt, uh, Lou Romano, Ian Holm, and Janine Garofalo, among others. Uh, most notably, sorry, I will give one more, Peter O'Toole, obviously, as Anton Ego. Um, Ratatouille is a perfect film. That's correct. That's, that, that's my review. <laughs> um, no, it is a story. First off, you've probably seen Ratatouille. Second off, you've done the homework. Um, but it is a uh, food-loving rat who is able to control a human cook uh, using his hair. And uh, they're in Paris working at a restaurant of a uh, deceased um, sort of populist but five-star food chef, uh, Anton Gusteau, or Auguste Gusteau. Um, whose motto was anyone can cook. Uh, 
They have to overcome difficulties, such as Ian Holm, the new owner of the restaurant, uh, having shenanigans, uh, and the uh, critic Anton Ego, who is um, in an excellent piece of characterization, incredibly skinny, and when asked about it, he says if he does not like the food, he doesn't swallow. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's it's a perfect film. Um, one reason I really wanted to talk about it, other than an excuse to rewatch Ratatouille, is I'm fascinated by the fact that we have this, as Martha, as you mentioned earlier, there's this entire industry of food-related TV and movies, whether it's competition shows or documentaries or, you know, movies like this. And food, obviously, sight and sound are important to food, but the main senses used in food are taste and smell. So there's that tension of how do we translate what is supposed to be, you know, amazing, perfect, transcendent food through the senses that aren't being used to convey that. And Ratatouille has some excellent sort of synesthetic moments uh, where Remy is describing like a strawberry and some cheese uh, that really sort of showcases intuitive and inno innovative ways to showcase taste and and smell using sound and vision. Well, and then there's also the scene at the end when Anton tastes Remy's food for the first time mm -hmm. and is instantly transported back to a scene that I think we are supposed to assume is from his childhood. Mm -hmm. And that particular scene is, first of all, makes me cry every time. Um, but also, like, that feeling, I don't have to know what the ratatouille tastes like to know what it tastes like, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Like, it, it is enough to watch that scene and go, oh, it tastes like home to him. Mm -hmm. And even it, though I am not a particular fan of Ratatouille itself, it uh, um, the, the dish you mean? Yeah, the, the yeah. actual dish. Um, I can still watch that and go, oh man, that tastes amazing because of how they are able to communicate that it's transportive for him. It does an excellent job at capturing how food is more than simply the the act of eating, but it's everything that comes with it. Uh, and I know that's like, you sort of said that's why we're talking about food in this episode, but food, obviously this isn't always the case, but good food is often correlated with good company and good memories. Um, you know, there's a reason that like breaking bread is an important part of every culture because eating a meal with someone is a bonding experience makes the time you spend with them better, I would argue. Um, and that, like, that scene of him flashing back to his, like, to the nostalgic past and letting the food transport him there really sort of highlights that. Well, and it changes his entire demeanor. Mm -hmm. Like, he has been this, like, long, sour, dour-looking old man, and he comes alive when he eats that last dish. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that uh, Gusto is the yes. name of the, the celebrity chef. Yes. Um, one of the things that I appreciate is how, even though he's a fictional character, like I can correlate him to actual celebrity chefs mm -hmm. that serve, have served that purpose. Like my, my mother-in-law um, believes very strongly that he's based off of Yan Ken Cook. Uh, a cooking show that she used to watch um, 
I think it was on PBS, um, but it starred Martin Yan. Um, and the whole tagline of the show was, if he can do it, so can you. Mm-hmm. And this idea of making food accessible. Um, one of the things that Ratatouille also addresses, I think, are the distinctions between like, quote unquote, fine dining and lower forms of cuisine. When um, when Remy is plotting out the ratatouille, Janine Garofalo's character goes, but that's a peasant dish, mm-hmm. implying that like this is what we're pulling out to impress the the food critic. And it's like, yeah, because, you know, high quote unquote, highbrow cuisine can is a, is a wider narrative, I think, than many people consider it to be. Well, and the flip side of it is uh, Ian Holmes' character Skinner is cashing in on Gusteau's reputation by making basically a bunch of, like, frozen meals. So that's lowbrow, but it's lowbrow with no heart in it. You know, it's like, it's it's the mass-produced frozen food that has no, no heart and soul and will definitely not be transporting anyone to their childhood. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, Remy's dish is also lowbrow, but it's made with fine ingredients, with care, with attention, and that is part of what matters. Um, going back to the idea, though, like, anyone can cook, I think that's also a little bit of Julia Child, um, mm-hmm. which, uh, you know, the idea of, yes, these dishes might seem intimidating, they might seem outside your comfort zone, but give it a try. <laughs> the worst that can happen is you screw it up and you have to try it again. And who cares? Yeah, Like, exactly. if, if you mess up, then... You know, who cares? Messing up is a, and we'll get into this a little bit more, I'm sure, with Food Wars, but uh, messing up is a very useful thing to do because you can learn how to salvage it, and learning how to salvage it teaches you something, or not learning how to salvage it either way, teaches you things about cooking. Uh, Do we want to get into Food Wars? Because I feel like it has a lot to say about the class question as well. Um, you know, this question of like, what makes something worth, worthwhile almost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I, I feel like. Yeah, go, go, yeah, go with okay. it. <laughs> so I, I assigned, um, the, the first couple of episodes of an anime that first debuted in 2015 called Food Wars, uh, the Japanese subtitle is Shokugeki no Soma, and it is about a teenager, Soma Yukihira, who works in a diner with his dad. And in the first episode, uh, we are introduced to kind of how the show is going to be portraying food and cooking and people's reactions to cooking uh, by having Soma... Uh, save the diner from an opportunistic business person who's looking to buy up some property. Um, And she's basically like, if you can cook something that will impress me, I won't buy out your diner. Um, And with limited ingredients, again, uh, introducing one of the themes of inventiveness and flexibility, Mm -hmm. uh, he puts together a revelatory dish for her. Um, and we all get to see the the kind of mood <laughs> of Food Wars. Um, essentially, Food Wars 
displays people's reactions to eating really good food in a very over-the-top sexual way because it is an anime aimed at teenage boys. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, so he saves the diner uh, only to have his dad uh, decide to close it temporarily while he goes off on some cooking travels and sends Soma to a culinary high school called the Totsuki Academy, which is an elite culinary boarding school in Japan, um, where Soma will spend the rest of the show um, duking it out to have his cooking recognized um, at the same level as the rest of his more classically trained um, fellow students. Um, The conceit of the central conceit of the show, which I don't know that you got far enough to see, Pete, is this is basically the students can fight for um, dominance, rank, bragging rights. They they use them to to fight for all sorts of stuff uh, with a food war, um, which is an Iron Chef style head to head where they get a theme and uh, frequently a time limit and they have to produce a dish. Uh, and then three judges decide whose dish is better. Um, the food wars are used to determine almost everything at the school. Um, I had been hoping if if you had got to episode seven, you would have seen um, a food war happen between uh, one of the, like the queen bee, um, Arena, one of her henchmen, battles a representative of the bowl meal club for their, for the rights to their kitchen. And the, the whole question there is, well, you know, bowl meals are lunches for blue collar workers. So like how, how good can it get basically? Um, so we get a whole episode dedicated to, uh, showing that even something that's served in a bowl with rice on the bottom, how that can be elevated um, elevated in a way to make it competitive with like fine dining. Well, I, I did not get that far, but that is definitely a through line of the four episodes that I did see. Um, you know, uh, what's his name? Soko Suki? Soma. Soma, thank you. Um, yeah, Soma Yukihira. I got most of those syllables right, just in the wrong order. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Soma is obviously coming from a uh, a lower class neighborhood, a lower class sort of restaurant in comparison to all the rest of it. And even in just episode episodes two, three, and four, where he's at the school, that is shining through. Um, uh, Irina is sort of is like, I refuse to let him in because he is a, you know, he's a peasant. And even though the food that he made was incredible, I can't, you know, sully the school and my reputation with his peasantiness. Yeah, she doesn't want to admit that somebody who has no classical training and learned to cook in a diner could um, make food that she finds to be delicious. And her whole deal is that she has a perfect sense of taste, so she can taste, like, every imperfection uh, in a dish. She has the god tongue. (laughs) Thanks something. You know, his entrance exam ends up being to cook a dish for Arana, and if she thinks it's acceptable, he gets in. Um, And she poses this as a way of basically getting out of having to grade entrance exams. (laughs) So everyone is like, I can't go up against that. And Soma's just like, yeah, sure, I'll do it. 
and and he succeeds. Well, part of part of what she dislikes so much about him is also that assuredness. Like it's not just um it's not just the fact that she doesn't consider his training to be on par with what is like Totsky level, but also that he's so cocky and like confident about his skill level. I think she she thinks of it as needing to humble him mm-hmm. before like the finer uh finer cuisine um lineages i guess yeah and i i was i was starting to worry about that halfway through episode four because um by the point of halfway through episode four he hasn't gone through any food wars yet but he has succeeded at every challenge that has been presented to him in a way that causes anyone to eat the food to have like an orgasmic reaction to it um and so at that point it's sort of like a all right so he like his cockiness seems deserved but at the end of episode four, he eats a dish by uh, one of his new dorm mates, um, who is the f- fourth ranked student in the entire uh, school and has a similar reaction to his uh, classmates dish that everyone else has to his. And he sort of recognizes that, like, he th- he thinks he is and he is hot stuff, but he still has a long way to go. He still has a lot to learn. Um, well, and that was an show- important, like revelation for him yeah the show does get better about showing that even when people so most of the food that gets made on food wars has inspires that reaction like it is it is always food that's being made by kids who know what they're doing yeah um but the judging and the critiques get more complex as they have to define like okay what makes this what actually is making this better than this other dish so even like it acknowledges that you can enjoy something and something can be good and there's still room there for improvement which i think is also very key to soma's character like Mm -hmm. he's always he he wants to be the best i don't think that at the beginning of the show he thinks he is the best right right i think he wants the chance to get there right Um, One thing I really appreciate about the show is that it it goes into detail explaining how many of the dishes are made in, like, obviously a rough cursory way, but in a way where if you had even a passing comfort in the kitchen, you could screw around with it and probably come up with something that would taste pretty good. Um, uh, Obviously, for most of the dishes, you have to like and have access to Japanese cooking, but not for all dishes. Um... And, and like, I, I just thought that was a very nice little sidebar. Like, whoever is making this obviously knows their stuff. Well, that was one of the things I wanted to bring up. They actually had a professional chef as a collaborator on the show. Mm-hmm. That makes absolute sense. Yeah, so let me... Where Where is it? Uh, Yuki Morisaki um, is a... Um, a Japanese professional chef and entertainer um had has been featured on many shows in Japan on his own but basically provided consultation for all of the cooking on the show so it is very much based in a like this is the way that food actually works yeah one of the things that i really love about it that becomes clearer the more of it that you watch is that a lot most of the students are defined by the things and the ways that they cook um, 
anime's anime loves a nickname and many of the students get like fully absurd nicknames based on um their preferred <laughs> methods of cooking i did meet the the game girl uh, the girl who likes game yeah and then so even just in the polaris dormitory where soma lives you have um the girl who yeah specializes in game meets you have um one guy who does all of his stuff through smoking Mm -hmm. um there's a girl who ferments all of her things so like you you start to see people like really specializing in certain methods of cooking uh which helps to kind of define who they are and where they come from Mm -hmm. uh megumi the student that soma helps out um in the French cooking class, her whole deal becomes homey cooking that really makes you feel um, taken care of and nurtured. Mm. Like she, she is basically the, the Ratatouille scene at the end um, and how people look down on that initially because they're like, Oh, it's simpler or rougher, like comfort home food. style. Yeah. Um, but as the show goes on and she gets better at what she does, um, she doesn't change what she does. She is just able to show that her methods and this very homegrown style of cooking can be just as refined as anything else, um, you know, as like the, the French or Italian cuisines that other students specialize in. I like and I'm not at all surprised that that's what she specializes in because uh, you watch the the dubbed, I watch the subs, and in the subs, I don't know if it's, this is the same for you, she has a definite, like, sl- rural, slangy kind of way of speaking, like, you know, gonna, instead of going to, uh, is the subtitle yeah. word and all the rest of it. Yeah, they, um, I watched the two most recent seasons in subtitles, and they spell her accent more pronounced than her American, like her American voice actor does not have, um, they don't give her like a Southern accent. I, I was literally anything. wondering if, if they had her be Southern. <laughs> okay. They, that's that's that interesting. They just end up, cause I, I think that the, the way that she speaks and I don't, I don't know enough about Japanese to speak on this super knowledgeably. Mm-hmm. Um, but I believe it's very colloquial. So like, a a um like dialect of japanese that would be spoken in a very rural area sure but yes food and cooking is both universal and also incredibly uh classist (laughs) well it like it absolutely it absolutely is classist and yet both of the things we picked both highlight sort of the snobbery but also highlight ways uh or, or the importance of Maybe not importance, but like the the aspect of overcoming or subverting that snobbery or bringing it to the masses in a way as well. Absolutely. I think both of these pieces of media are really about the fact that food ultimately should be and is accessible. Um, There are a lot of people, you know, food critics, professional chefs who I think think of their food as being like over the heads of kind of the common audience. Mm hmm. And what I think both Food Wars and Ratatouille work to do is show that that's just not true. Like, as long as people have access to food, have access to good food, like, they'll appreciate it. It's not like it. 
it's not like I would eat something and say it was bad because I didn't know enough to know it was good. Does that make sense? <laughs> like something that tastes good yes. is going to taste good is going to taste good. Um, but I, there's, I, I'd argue against that a little, which is there is the like that's true asterisks, but you also have to take personal preference and all the rest into account. And familiarity, I think, is important as well. Um, sure, I, I'm talking exclusively about people who are in the professional food world who talk about certain dishes or kinds of cooking as being like peasant food to, to pull the phrase right out of um, Ratatouille. Like sure. there's this, this impression that there are certain kinds or styles of cooking that are worth less or not as deserving of time or attention because of the audiences that they are typically crafted for or the kinds of people who typically have access to them. Mm -hmm. And that the higher and more inaccessible you get with food, the quote unquote better that it is. Mm -hmm. And I think that both Ratatouille and Food Wars go, that stuff is good, but it's not the only kind of cooking that is worth our time. Right, right. I do think that, okay, so I've got sort of two different thoughts here. First is this is all making me think of uh, Guy Fieri and his sort of like, I feel like he's being reassessed a little bit, not his restaurants or his food, but simply what he does and who he is like diners drives in, drive in and dives and like him being the smash mouth of food personalities. Um, he was the butt of a lot of jokes for a while, but now I think there's a little bit of a coming around of like, it was important that he was going around and highlighting exactly the kind of places that you're talking about. Um, you know, like the greasy spoon cafes or the places that, uh, like the side of the road stands that just make amazing barbecue or whatever it might be. Um, well, and I think that he got, he was made the brunt of jokes for a long time because he is, over the top and bombastic and unrefined. And the kind of food that he is talking about is pretty blue collar or um, cheap, uh, it, it, easily it's not accessible. Refined. Right. And I think that that like, I think that the, the reassessment of him as a cultural figure. And again, I do want to make the distinction between like him as a cultural figure versus his restaurants. Cause I don't think his restaurants are being reassessed in any way. Um, but him as a cultural figure is happening at a time when I think there is a, like, I feel like the last, I don't know, six years, there has been a increased attention throughout food media in exactly what we're talking about. Um, there are more documentaries or just shows highlighting ways that good food isn't necessarily elitist food. And similarly, uh, quote-unquote low-class or peasant food isn't inherently bad or negative. Uh, people like David Chang or Padma Lakshmi are really pushing, you know, like taco trucks or whatever um, as, like, as legitimate both cultural and culinary endeavors um, and highlighting that, like, good food can come from anywhere. Yeah, inaccessibility is not a prerequisite to... Uh fine cuisine right right <laughs> um, i want to talk for a little bit about how i want to go back to your original question about how these these pieces of media get across 
taste and smell and flavor and all of the things about food that we can't access when we are watching it through a television screen. Yeah, I, uh, I really like I Food actually, Wars. <laughs> I think they, they are doing similar things just in a in a way that is appropriate to the kind of media that it is. Because <laughs> Food Wars, let us not forget that Food Wars is both a shonen and a battle manga or anime. Yeah. So it, it is it has a very particular audience. So the over the top sexualized and to give it credit, there is a pretty equal amount of beefcake as there is mm-hmm. uh you know, feminine nudity. There, there's so, a lot of guy tush in this. Yes. Um. Yeah. I. So, <laughs> I think you warned me. Like, get an episode in, see if it's your wavelength. Um. Not knowing what that would mean, I was telling you off air. I'm glad I I watched this with subtitles because, like, the over the top Japanese voice acting helped me be on the exact right wavelength for three minutes in having surprise hentai for showing bad dishes. Um, yes, which a girl is shown uh, to be pretty explicitly molested by Soma's uh, peanut Tentacle. butter and squid noodles. <laughs> right. And then later that that visual reoccurs with a honey and squid situation. Um, and I, I thought that was a, a, a very clever way to show a bad dish. <laughs> Um, but that, that's also paired with the, like, over-the-top jumping naked through a field or, uh, bathing in a water with a a mountain gorilla, um, There's a lot of clothes shredding. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's, like, it's, it's a lot of nature scenes, though, when it's something good. Um, you have a bunch of cherubs flying around with the primary ingredient. Um, Mm -hmm. creepy cherubs, not cute cherubs. Um, but the, like... It's a very nature sort of oriented see like scenery in a lot of these and like relaxing uh uh steam baths uh, uh like onsen mm-hmm. is that how that's pronounced? Yes. Okay, great. Um so it's it's all a very like kind and comforting and relaxing and cultural like that makes a lot of sense culturally that it would be like an outdoor nature sort of scene as the like the the paradise taste. Well, and we frequently will get scenes of somebody taking a first bite and then doing that, like, eyes fly open, um, like, quick freeze frame on their face looking shocked. Yeah. And then a a monologue of some kind describing the flavor. Um, When we start to get dishes that are, like, more intense or spicy or weird in some way, the the metaphors kind of open up. There's a lot of, like, caressed by flavor. (laughs) that happens um i i had as you were describing that i had a sudden thought of the uh and this is wildly different but the american psycho scene where he's uh where they're all sharing the um the business cards uh it's kind of like that like oh my god is that bone (laughs) (laughs) um but you know it i in in Ratatouille, the most visual sequence that we get is that flashback, but we get a lot of really great descriptive language, like when when Remy is describing the the flavor of the cheese that he has toasted by lightning. Well, well, in that's, the very beginning. That's also paired though with a lot of synesthetic kind of visuals, where when he's describing to his brother, like when he's teaching his brother how to taste food, and it's like 
taste this strawberry smell it do you taste this like are you getting these notes there are lots of nice visuals that are abstract but are trying to sort of convey what those flavors might be and i think they do a really good job at at like visually represented like not metaphorically like food wars is but sort of abstractly representing what those flavors are and how they work very well and complement each other mm -hmm. it's also a nice way to just teach you how to taste and and how to begin to focus on eating um in the and same the vocabulary yeah to use yeah to like help you describe um i know the, we, we talked a little bit about how Food Wars does a lot of work to show you actual, like this is the way that cooking actually works. And I think a lot of the language that they use when they are tasting dishes, like it was, it was language that I could understand, even if it was not a dish I'd ever had any experience with. Mm -hmm. It's fun when they talk about the umami flavor, because it's like, right, that's a Japanese word. Cool. <laughs> like, as I'm just listening to a bunch of Japanese, all of a sudden, umami, umami. It's like, ah, okay, yeah, great. <laughs> as far as I can tell, umami is, like, savory, isn't it? Yes. Like, soy like sauce. sort of a savory richness? Yes. Uh, tomatoes are umami. Mushrooms are umami. Tomatoes are acidic. Yeah, but they also have, like, an umami. First off, I don't like tomatoes um, raw. I like them when you do literally anything to them. <laughs> uh, but not when you just slice them. Oh, um, I like them with a little bit of salt. Mm -hmm. Um, but I I think they're one of those like tomato paste is very umami flavor. Okay. Um, had something else I was gonna say. Oh, sorry, I derailed you. <laughs> no, no, that's okay. Uh, like in addition to both of these shows, sort of teaching you how to taste and the like, the vocabulary to use and what to think about. Um. Only recently, through both, like, Ratatouille and then other shows like um, Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, which we'll be talking about, spoilers, on our next episode, I've only just sort of thought of cheese as being, like, Parmesan cheese as being nutty. And oh, interesting. In, in, like, the past four years, I've sort of been, like, I've gone from just Parmesan cheese, that's the thing you put on pasta, I don't think it has a strong taste one way or the other, to now it's like, yeah, no, this, like, a good slice of Parmesan cheese, that is a little bit nutty. Um, oh, see, I, I buy different parmesan cheese based on what i want to use it for <laughs> and part of this too is i've only recently started buying like quality well that's not true i was buying quality i guess they weren't parmesans they were just like sartori cheese which is like asiaga really um different definitely different. very good but different definitely different so i guess only recently have i been eating parmesan pr true proper parmesan and in the past i've just been using similar but different cheeses for the same like for pasta toppings um slightly derailing me from my main point which is that i'm i'm not sure if food wars will get into this i'm kind of sure it will but ratatouille in addition to teaching you like how to think about food it also teaches you useful cooking ideas like mise en place and uh you know uh the importance of you know keep your knives sharp things like like basic basic kitchen things um and it does it very I... very efficiently in the story but also that's a useful thing for the viewer to know um i also got you also get to learn about a lot of really cool cooking implements mm -hmm. um but i one of the reasons that i watch this show dubbed is because i watch a lot of it while i'm cooking <laughs> <laughs> sure uh and i 
I feel like a fancy person <laughs> when I <laughs> I do things. So this is this is something that actually happened to me. I was watching an episode of the show while I was cooking myself lunch, and I don't remember all of what I made myself, but I did make I did pan fry some uh, some chopped up leeks to mix in with my rice because I was like I don't want to just have plain rice. Mm-hmm. I want to have I want to do something a little kicky with it. Um, so I, I enjoy that this show can kind of make you feel like a fancy bee while you're, <laughs> while you're cooking. I, I also like cooking while watching cooking, like cooking something totally different while watching food related shows. Um, during Great, uh, Great British Baking Time, uh, aka whenever new seasons are out, I only watch that while I'm also in the kitchen. I don't know that I would have this reaction to Great British Bake Off, but one of the things that I like about watching a show like Food Wars while I'm cooking is that it makes me feel more adventurous while I'm cooking. Mm. So like if I'm watching if I'm watching the characters be uh, improvising and like thinking on their feet, then I start to be like, oh, well, I can just do this and I can just mix in this. (laughs) It, it makes the, it really does make the whole process of cooking feel more accessible, which I think is completely the point. Yeah. Yeah. So why do we love narratives about food? I mean, first off, I think it's like (laughs) eating is the universal human experience, uh, obviously. And you do have the tech bros who are like, all you need is Soylent and it's fine. But that is a, to me, a very sad way to live. Uh, The stories around COVID of people losing their sense of taste, even for a small amount of time, fill me with not dread, but like anxiety. Um, Oh, such sorrow. Sorrow, yeah. And the like people who lose their who will lose their sense of taste because of this plague for like prolonged periods of time or their entire life, that's such a devastating loss for them of like an integral part of the human experience. Um uh, one of the writers for the New York Times cooking section uh got COVID and lost her sense oh, of taste. No. Um I'll do you do you have a New York Times subscription? I have New York Times cooking. Okay, I'll find the article and send it to you because she talks about um, how it really just killed like a lot of her, you know, personal motivation and um, the the kinds of foods that as she started to regain her sense of taste, the like like she regained the sense of spicy hmm. first. So like what that meant for the the kinds of foods she started making and like finding comfort in as she started to register different flavors again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um uh Marin has a family friend who like has no set like literally has had no sense of taste for years, but he loves cooking and so he he's a very good cook. He just has everyone else like taste his dishes for him. Uh which I think is a very interesting way to sort of go about that. I feel like if I lost my taste my interest in cooking would just drop and I would just subscribe to Soylent because whatever, might as well. Talking, slight sidebar, talking to some friends who did have COVID and who lost their sense of taste for a short amount of time, they had very interesting stories of like what, like they had to completely change what they ate um, because it became suddenly entirely about texture. And so things like peanut butter were just horrific. 
Oh, I can imagine. That would be like trying to eat cement. Yeah, and like and none of the delicious peanutty taste. Um so like and that sort of goes on another sidebar tangent. I know I'm like eight I'm on eight hundred of these so far, but you were the initial question of like why are we interested in shows like this? I think one reason is because food, while it is primarily taste and smell, it does engage all of our senses. And so, like, all of our five senses, plus, as both of these shows and slash movies show, um, like, memory and nostalgia and emotions in general. Um, so even though we don't get the primary senses for food, we are able to both, we're able to convey what it looks like and what it sounds like, which is crucial, and we're able to play with sort of the more metaphorical aspects of food, whether it's memory or um, frolicking through a forest naked while being tickled by honey cherubs. I was going to say cherubs made of eggs. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I also think that it, I, I don't think we could understate the importance of how food can bridge a cultural divide. Mm. So like, even when we are watching Um, so like I, I enjoy Japanese food, but there's a lot of it that is not familiar to me. Um, but it does not alienate me from watching somebody make it. Mm -hmm. Like I don't necessarily have to be familiar with the ingredients that they're making. There's, there's an episode later on where, um, the students are told to go outside into like a wooded area and make a classic Japanese dish using whatever they can forage. So they end up cooking with a lot of like really natural uh, native ingredients to Japan, most of which I have never heard of before. <laughs> right. But I can still look at the end result and be like, that looks good. Mm-hmm. I would eat that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I don't, I don't need a full background or understanding of what it is to appreciate watching its creation or hearing about, its taste and reception yes yes and it, like in addition to th- in addition to bridging cultural divides um what like one thing that's great about american culture is that we are just we we grab from every other culture so you know you, you walk down any major like you walk around any major city and you're going to get a incredible variety of food cultural options um Obviously, American Chinese food is different than traditional Chinese food, but it's also different than, you know, traditional Italian food or or whatever else it is. Um, Whereas if you go to Spain, you're not going to find, like, a taco place anywhere, um, just because those aren't as big in Europe. Or if you do, it won't be as good as in America. Um, Instead, you'll find other different and interesting cuisines. Um... But the other thing that food does, in addition to, to bridging those cultural divides, is it brings people together. Like, I've been talking a lot about conveying food personally, like either through memory or through uh, flights of fancy. But a lot of, um, like, Ratatouille, it's all about that kitchen culture. Food Wars, it's also about that kitchen culture, but it's also, like, it opens with a bunch of um, Soma's school friends 
like trying two different dishes one that he made one that his dad made and comparing them and like and that camaraderie that like coming together and eating food together and like having that little fun competition between the two like it's dialed up to 11 because it's a shonen battle uh you Mm -hmm. know anime but at, at the heart it's about like creating food like you create food for yourself but you also create it for others you want to share it Mm -hmm. with people you want to bring people together through it um and things like competitions or just bake-offs comparisons food wars whatever creates that sense of community Mm -hmm. it's one of the things i really really miss uh about this pandemic (laughs) Yes. I had a I had a very good food community here uh, in Milwaukee, and and like I still do, and we talk over Zoom, uh, but it's not the same as you know, getting together every week and sharing a meal that like everyone has contributed something to. Mm-hmm. I miss going to restaurants so badly, so much. Oh my god, um, I I almost cried the other day. I was talking to a friend of ours who lives out in Seattle. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about brewery tours and I started thinking about the Pike Place Market and all of the food there and the restaurants. And I was just like, I miss traveling. Mm -hmm. I miss restaurants. (laughs) I miss food that I didn't make myself or get from a takeout container. Although we have gotten some truly excellent takeout over the past year or so yeah we have gotten great takeout but at the end of the day like there are some restaurants where like yes i will get takeout from them because i want to support them but their takeout is never going to compare to them to to being in that restaurant itself um getting the food on a plate fresh out of the kitchen um all the like you know don't have to microwave it all the rest um tomorrow we're actually going to a a bar slash restaurant, uh, which is having a Star Wars pop-up thing where they have four outdoor huts, uh, like that private huts that you can rent. Um, and each one is themed to a different Star Wars planet. So uh, well, it, it will be like the first time we're eating at a restaurant basically since the pandemic started. <laughs> and we'll still be like, it'll be fun and kitschy, but it will still be outdoors in an, in a hut of some sort, you know? Yeah, one of the things that we have done twice, which actually has been a really great experience, um, there is a restaurant in Chicago called Next, which is part of the Alinea group of very fancy restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, again, spoiler alert, we'll talk more about Alinea uh, and microgastronomy on our next episode. Um, but what they have been doing is for $35 a person, which is That's incredibly about a, reasonable. <laughs> about a quarter of what we would pay to actually go to this restaurant um they do meals that you pick up and basically it's it's all mise en place and like two-thirds prepared and then you bring them home and like finish the assembly yourself so like you reheat some stuff we got new year's eve dinner from them and our my final preparations was like we had um pork schnitzel uh mustard spatzel and red wine braised cabbage so i had to like heat some stuff up i had to saute the spatzel and butter um (laughs) oh no now my house smells like butter right so like we got each each one it it ended up being like a a meal kit but two-thirds of the prep had already been done so Mm -hmm. i would get my little container of butter that was already mixed up with like herbs and garlic so it's like just melt the butter in the pan toss it with the spatzel and plate it and you're good to go yeah yeah that's Um, a great idea 
And again, it's $35 a person. This is a restaurant that if Bill and I were to go and sit down and eat there, we would not be getting out of for less than probably $500. Mm -hmm. Like once the whole... Like with the wine and all the rest. Right. Yeah. Well, actually, with wine pairings, it probably would be more like seven or eight hundred. Oh wow. Okay. <laughs> well, it's they the Alinea group. They tend to be prefixed menus, mm -hmm. so it's like a an eight to ten tasting menu um, with a set price. It, it it gets very expensive because it's a very exclusive dining experience of hot cuisine and yeah. the way that they have found to make themselves accessible during this pandemic has also made them accessible in a way that they just would not have been or are not to us on a normal day. Do you think they'll continue doing that after the pandemic or do you think they will go back to the more exclusive style? I don't know. Um, I kind of hope they continue to provide, even if it's at a reduced number, mm -hmm. continue to provide um, accommodations for the takeout thing. Um, I have no idea what the cost per plate is right. compared to actually like serving um, in the restaurant. I, I'm kind of hoping that there are some lessons that we learn from this pandemic that carry over when we are all able to con like resume um not normal life, but like activities that we used to do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I've, I've been thinking about this a little bit where it's like, there are definite, like <laughs> there are some restaurants, like I said, that I will always prefer to go to in person. There are others that it's really great. I can get takeout from them. Um, I'm happy to go eat there in person once I can do that, but like, it's also kind of nice to just eat it at home. <laughs> I miss brewery tours oh my god we have broken like just through through random freak happenstance we've broken like four pint glasses in the past week or two uh and i was just joking it's like the breweries need to reopen so that we can get more glasses because oh at, at this rate of breakage we're not going to have any i also broke a pint glass but it was the one that bill got as a wedding favor from oh. his sister's wedding oh no however that did mean that i i just had to get the name of the etsy shop that she got them engraved from <laughs> i was able to buy him a replacement one i was gonna say it's either that um, or do some like kintsugi uh repairs on it which is challenging with glass yes no i was able to get an uh get one etched by the same people who had made the original one nice um, any final thoughts on what i'm calling our food feelings episode <laughs> <laughs> no i don't think so uh pete you want to tell us what we're talking about next episode yes uh if this episode was food feelings our next episode is food facts uh we're watching some documentaries about food um by happenstance or by choice this episode was all fiction by happenstance it was all cartoons uh next episode is all documentaries um i am assigning the netflix documentary salt fat acid heat uh, by samin newsrat um I'm specifically assigning the first episode, which is about fat, and will take us to Italy, and the second episode, which is about salt, which will take us to uh, Japan. Uh, we will also get into why it is called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat, but the order of those two episodes is reversed. Hint, the answer is American racism. <laughs> oh, good. Um, and I'm assigning a couple of episodes of the Netflix show Chef's Table. 
Uh, I have selected from season one, episode four, about Nikki Nakayama. Uh, season one, episode six, about Magnus Nilsson. And season two, episode one, about Grant Ashatz, who is the uh, head chef of the Alinea Group. Chef's uh, Table is the premier food porn documentary show. Uh, and I'm very excited to revisit all these episodes. Yes, each episode is approximately an hour-long mini-documentary about a premier chef somewhere in the world and their uh, flagship restaurant. And we will get into it next episode. But yeah, they talk about that that chef's particular journey with food um, and towards developing and opening their restaurant. Uh, while you are waiting... For that to come out, um, you can follow us on social media. We are located at all the places at DYDYH Podcast. Uh, you can also listen to our sister show, Love Ya, which releases on this same feed on alternating Wednesdays. It is a show that I do with Pete's wife, Marin, where we watch a teen movie or rom-com and dissect it for your listening pleasure. Our last episode was about the Ryan Murphy original musical, The Prom. And our next episode is about a movie whose title I couldn't remember if you paid me. So we'll have to check in with Marin about what I'm supposed to be watching <laughs> for that show. I think she watched it already. I yeah, don't know. Probably. I, I low-key thought your next episode was prom, and I edit these, so I already listened to your episode about the prom. Uh, which... <laughs> which was actually a good episode. You even it said was. so in your email to me. It was. It was a good episode. Um, you can follow me personally on social media on all the places at Magical Martha. I tweet a lot about my guinea pigs, uh, one of whom has recently learned that if she stands up real tall, she gets extra treats. Ooh, which one is that? <laughs> That's probably Selena. Uh, Selena, yeah, yes. Harley doesn't Harley does not stand for treats. <laughs> Harley Harley knows that she will get treats regardless of whether she stands or not. <laughs> Harley doesn't need to impress anyone. Yes. My my recent very brief uh cute story about Selena is that um she has a pillow in her cage shaped like a pepper, which currently is propped up against her Heidi hut so that she can do zoomies around the cage and go through a little tunnel next to her house. She has made herself a speedway tunnel. <laughs> okay. Uh, she also yells at us whenever we turn the Xbox on or off because she hates the noise it makes. <laughs> uh, Pete, where can people find you on social media? You, know, you can find me on Twitter at Pico3000. That's P-I-K-O-3000, where I'm doing politics and pop culture and other uh, similar nonsense uh it's been a much better politics run for the past week um obviously not not perfect but feels better listen banning trump i'm not prepared to give twitter any cookies for this because they should have done it four years ago yeah but i do feel very strongly that it has made twitter i at least i i blocked him real early so i'm seeing a lot fewer you don't want to look at this tweet mm. so we're not going to show it to you <laughs> uh yeah like all, all i had to read about on twitter today was uh like redditors uh exploding the gamestop stock that's like way better than trump ranting and raving about whatever nonsense he's ranting and raving about these days 
It's gotten even better. The the class action lawsuits against the Robinhood app have already started. Yes, I know. Uh, Stock trading, not just for rich people, even though that's what they want you to think. Yep. Well, it's, it's yeah, yeah. It's not what they want you to think, but it's what it actually is. Or whatever. Make that sentence make sense. You got it. You understand what's going on. The point is the stock market is a scam. Yes. And if Reddit was able to make some money off of hedge fund jerks for a while before they collapsed the uh, stock market economy, then more power to them. And we'll see if, uh, you know, how how tomorrow and Monday and the rest of the the time forward shakes out with this. I I was uh, texting some friends. It's like, this is a really great way to accidentally radicalize a bunch of people in a, uh, you know, Occupy Wall Street kind of direction. So we'll see what happens. The best tweet that I have seen about it and really the only one I needed was somebody retweeting a headline with the uh, with the addition of it is a beautiful day on the New York Stock Exchange and you are a horrible goose. Ah, <laughs> uh, excellent. Yes. Let us all be horrible geese. Ah. <laughs> uh, that game came out 10,000 years ago in my memory. 2 years ago, I think. Yep. I think that was 2019. It it was. It was like March but pre-pandemic. So, 2019 March, not. Yeah. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I was about oh. to say, I think we're going to be under an hour, but after this outro taking forever, we're not. <laughs> well, now I'm wondering if it was 2018. I think I it was... thought it was... I thought it was 19. I thought it was way pre-pandemic. None of this matters. 2019. September 2019. Okay. Oh, all right. So, so yeah, it was like Barely six months. pre-pandemic. <laughs> yeah, like six months pre. None of this matters. Thank you all for listening. <laughs> <laughs> Enjoy doing your homework. Uh, Pete, am I missing anything for can, our outro? Yeah, where can you find the show? I said at all the places, at DYDYH Podcast. Oh, okay, cool. Homeworkpodcast.com, but I haven't updated our website in like two years. <laughs> <laughs> the problem is I'm lazy and no one pays us to do this. Right, so. right. I have the quote-unquote easy job of editing. You have the uh, easy in the sense that it has to happen. You have the job where it doesn't have to happen, so it doesn't. Right. I post, I, I make sure our episodes are uploaded to SoundCloud. Yes. <laughs> everything else is bonus. Right. right. The, the <laughs> thing that has to happen gets done. Everything else, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Yep. All right. All right. Enjoy doing your homework, y'all. Class dismissed. A nice punchy outro. <laughs> um, yeah, that is probably going to be under an hour. I'm not sad about that.